Hey guys, it is Susanna and Isha, and we are here with another episode of Let's Break It Down, a pop culture and politics podcast. Yes, we are um, still here. We're still talking about the various things that have been going on this summer. This week's episode is called The Weirdest Summer Ever because Mm -hmm. it's just unrelenting in its weirdness and intensity, and so we're just naming that and saying it out loud. That's right. So... Uh, we want to start off by talking a little bit about the ongoing tomfoolery with the Zimmerman trial and its aftermath, right? So recently, it seems like George Zimmerman has hired Olivia Pope. <laughs> That's what it seems like. Or gotten in touch with Oprah and Jesus. I don't know who. Maybe the all three. Right. It was a conference call. Because how did he manage to stage, I mean, rescue people minutes away from where he gunned down uh, Trayvon Martin with impunity. So the story goes something like he was driving by. He did not witness the accident, but a a family's car was mangled or overturned or something. Mm -hmm. And of course, he pulled over to the side as a good Samaritan because he is a community, Mm -hmm. you know, watch person, of course. Mm -hmm. And so he was just watching the community. Now, isn't this brother supposed to be on lockdown, house something like under surveillance or, or, uh, I don't know, in hiding? Right. He just was like, because what I'm going to do is go down to the farm store. Now, people from Florida know what I'm talking about. The farm store, you drive up, and then it's, it has a very limited um, stock. And you can get, like, your cherry ice cream mm-hmm. and your soda and so on. So maybe he just had a hankering mm-hmm. That's for some possible. cherry ice cream. It happens. Even murderers like cherry ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that's what he was going to do, right? And or return a movie to the you know red box. That's right, because sometimes your deadlines. And maybe get a refill on his nachos because mm-hmm. he's just straight chilling. Mm-hmm. He's having a good time. Mm-hmm. And he just like Hercules was able to save this family mm-hmm. from a car. Now he could not fight off Trayvon Martin. He had right. to shoot him. Right. But he was able to lift this car well, out of the ditch or whatever. You know, adrenaline works that yeah. way. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a bunch of things about this that are ridiculous and also very intense and telling. Um, one is the sort of obvious, I mean, my initial response was, what? That doesn't sound like a real thing. That sounds like some sort of image rehabilitation project. Maybe I've been watching too much Scandal, but, you know, I just, that's immediately what I thought of. Um But the other thing, too, is, like, this notion of, like, who George Zimmerman is. Like, Mm -hmm. we can't seem to get our heads around it. It came out so clearly in the very first juror's testimony where she Mm -hmm. was trying to make sense of him. She was trying to, she was giving him a lot of the benefit of the doubt. The, The first juror who spoke anonymously on Anderson Cooper's show is the one I'm talking about. Right. Beast Uh, 37, I believe. Yeah. And so she, you know, trying to sort of give him a narrative by which to understand his actions and a context to place around who he is. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's very hard just to be in the world and to feel comfortable with the notion that someone who lives in your town, um, who's your neighbor, can just be a a cold-blooded killer, right? So I think there's a lot of that. And then there's just a lot, I imagine, that he and his family and his supporters are going through in terms of trying to figure out how to 
talk about him as a person because he is still around and he will continue to be around. That's and, right. and so I think that is, you know, we have this sort of like need to make sense of it. Um, I mean, I don't have that need. I, it's very clear to me what has happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems clear that he feels the need to sort of have some kind of narrative around who he actually is. That's right. Um, which is really problematic and just, it's so acute to me that it's just, He's getting the chance to tell his story about who he really is, right? And then, and we, to shape it in particular sorts of right. ways. He has all these tools in his arsenal, as it were, literally and figuratively. Um, and, you know, according to this juror, Rachel, Rachel Jontel doesn't get to be a credible witness. But George Zimmerman can be, you know, all these sort of things around him can make him seem more credible. So he's really, you know, harnessing these tools of white supremacy in, in interesting and profitable ways. But what's been coming out in the past few days, and the story is still developing, is that it seems like George Zimmerman is in possession of a police scanner. He's good friends with somebody in the police department, right? Officer Patrick Redher, or Redder, R-E-H-D-E-R. That's still sort of, people are investigating that situation. So it seems like this homeboy of his might have... um, tipped him off to say, oh, this thing is happening on the road, and you might want to get your behind down there and see if you can do something. Because it just seems to me that rather than being one of those situations where George Zimmerman is someone who is, um, you know, just a concerned citizen, I think that's the narrative that he's been spinning, he clearly has some kind of, like, superhero complex, right? Mm-hmm. And as like a longtime nerd and fangirl, I and I, I love superhero movies too, but your life cannot be uh another installment of Kick Ass or or Batman or The Watchmen or something. And a lot of those kinds of tales and texts and film films have a kind of fascist undertone where you're just supposed to support the state no matter what mm-hmm. and these vigilantes come through and do XYZ and it's all these dreams of like emasculated whiteness being able to um you know walk about unfurled and with impunity and and that's what I think he's trying to access. I don't think he gives a fuck about anybody. Excuse my French. <laughs> I think that he's really about um, aggrandizing his own mm-hmm. whatever warped sense of, mm-hmm. of, of self. Mm-hmm. And I'm not here for it, especially if he's just going to be killing folk. Right. Um, right. Know. And also, like, we have to name it in this moment that we're in. Like, what is our obsession with creating a narrative for George Zimmerman that he gets to create himself? Like, mm-hmm. Trayvon Martin did not get to create a narrative around his identity himself. That was signified on him. It was racialized. It was classed. It was all these various things. And so it's very it's very telling the way that not just when I say we, I mean sort of the broader media. The story got a lot of coverage. Um, any investigation of it at its surface would have shown that there were shady things happening. It took several days for those things to emerge about his connections with the police office, um, the fact that he's got this scanner, all these things. So, you know, it's just like there's so much, he's getting so much chance to sort of tell a story about himself and craft an identity um, that fits with the identity that his defense team was crafting for him during the trial. And so it just continues. The the saga, the drama, the horror just continues um, of him trying to portray himself as a protector 
And rather than a perpetrator. Rather than a perpetrator, right. Exactly. We're not here for it. No. We're unconvinced and unmoved. So I look forward to seeing how this um, uh, develops. Because on the one hand, I have a, a whole lot of... Um, I understand how white supremacy works. So, you know, very little may happen to George Zimmerman. But I, I part of me also thinks that he's fairly cocky. And he's gotten away with murder, literally. And so he might, you know, slip up again. We'll see. I mean. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, it, time will tell. Um, so the other thing then that was sort of important this week that has sparked a lot of conversation was the president's speech. Yes. Uh, in response to the Zimmerman trial and the verdict. And I thought it was a a really um, important speech in a lot of con- in a lot of ways. Um, he, the president did a very, what well, he does so rarely, this sort of twofold mm-hmm. standing in this historical moment, right. looking back and offering a historical mm-hmm. narrative and then grounding himself in a very personal story, Absolutely. right? He started off by saying, I could, that have been thir- I could have been Trayvon 35 years ago. So he, so there's, he's doing it like, you know, two, two important things that he doesn't do very often right. where he sort of situates himself and his narrative in a political moment, particularly about race. And then also sort of looking back and offering historical context. And so I think, uh, it was really important that he did that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did lay out some policy and political goals that he had to my mind, they were um, lofty and a bit vague, but they were there. You know, they were there. He was he was trying to move from this is the historical context in which here's some action that and here's some potential action, and I get it. But you know, it didn't feel to me that the energy of his speech was in the actions no, and in the policy changes, no. um, because there's a lot that could be said about a systematic takedown of stand your ground laws around the country. There's a lot that could mm-hmm. be said about federal um, policy change that could prevent those kinds mm-hmm. of laws from being legal. And then just the broader overhauling of the racist criminal justice system. So, Right. Which I think is a lot to expect Obama to do, considering he is in the seat of power. Like, he's not right. going to be like, all of the things that I preside over are institutionally right. <laughs> uh, right. designed to oppress everyone who looks like me. I mean, you know, right. I, I think he understands that, but I think he's a pragmatist and he's not really going to get up there and be like, I mean, because really, if you pay attention to mainstream media or mm-hmm. media on the right, um, oftentimes interchangeable you know, mm-hmm. designations. But anyway, neither here nor there. Uh, they just fried him. And then on the left, he got fried, you know, because, um, you know, he didn't go far enough or what mm-hmm. have you. So either he's racist because he talks about how he could be Trayvon or, you know, um, the, the speech doesn't go far enough. And I, I actually am in agreement with that. The, the speech, at least that second part, I agree with you, Isha, that mm-hmm. it was lofty and vague. Um, as but policy speeches as often policy, are. I mean, and as his, poli- as his policy, policy speeches often are. I mean, he's I mean, particularly right. about, like, the feel-good. Because now he's going around to colleges. I mean, he did a speech recently at Knox College in Illinois, which was, I think, where he did his first, one of his first uh, speeches on economic policy years mm-hmm. ago. And it was just, like, you know, platitudes and so on. Um, I, but he's, he's really good at that. Mm-hmm. So... 
Uh, but I did appreciate the first part of the speech. But what was also interesting about the speech was the sort of fallout. So mm-hmm. your homies, Travis and Cornell. Oh, Tavis, my bad. Okay. Ain't no R in there. Um, <laughs> There's tourism. I know. I don't want Tavis to come after me. Um, really, you know, unleashed their continued hateration. Um, There's just really no other way to describe it. Right. Now, I appreciate a good yeah. legitimate critique of and a president. They have, and legi- yeah, which we have done here on our podcast mm-hmm. several times mm-hmm. about the president's policy. So it's not like we are not uh, in the business of doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, the tone of it was just so mm-hmm. different. Mm-hmm. And even if we take like tone notwithstanding, it's like because I, I hear like the tone argument, people being like, "Well, you know, if the truth is the truth." The thing about Tavis, for example, you know, which many people have mentioned, um, and um, Brittany Cooper and Salon was talking about this, and, you know, lots of other folks have written about the ways in which um, Tavis in particular has connections to Wells Fargo and to Walmart and things like that. So his critiques are interesting. Mm-hmm. We don't even get, wanted to get into Cornell's messiness, but okay. Um, that's not to say that they can't make critiques or that their critiques aren't legitimate. It's mm-hmm. just their critiques are interesting and nuanced, just the ways in which um, Obama's critiques are interesting and nuanced, mm-hmm. right? So this is someone who gets up there and says, I could have been Trayvon, and then it's like, oh, I'm going to appoint Ray Kelly right. to anything. To anything. Hugely problematic. Hugely problematic. So I think that we can recognize, uh, on the one hand, what his speech might symbolize or what it might mean or what his presence as a black president might mean and also really critique the imperialist policies that he continues to forward here and around the world. I mean, so it is a thing. Tavis, Cornell both raise good points from time to time. They are also both haters. It's a both and from Right. And it's a very complicated moment that we're in politically where we have a black president and we have a sort of progressives left, people on the left, to find a way to acknowledge the extreme power and symbolism of him as the first black president and also the sort of excessive scrutiny that he gets being mm-hmm. in that role. Mm-hmm. Um, the critique from the left that he's getting that is very different than, I mean, Melissa Harris Perry wrote a piece about this um, about a year ago um, for The Nation where she talked about how the progressives are critiquing the first black president in a way that they don't critique Democrats, white Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there is, I think that's important to note. It matters that he is the first black president Absolutely. and people are responding to him as such and people are responding in racist ways as such. Mm-hmm. So that's also true. And then at the same time, he is a Democrat within this machine um, that deserves critique and Absolutely. deserves to be held accountable and deserves Absolutely. to be. Um, all the various policies that we disagree with or that we find particularly harmful for communities of color in particular deserve to be lifted up. And it is not impossible to do both of those things while acknowledging the moment that we're in. It just requires some nuance. How about it? Nuance is important. I mean, I think, and we we talked a bit about this just earlier before the podcast, I just think of people that I've seen, read, and know who were standing hard for Hillary Clinton while it was, you know, the sort of Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama showdown, mm-hmm. right? And they were standing hard. And some of the stuff that was coming out of their mouths was like, 
wait, what? This is straight up racist. And I can imagine that if Hillary Clinton runs uh, for the and during the next election, that some folks who stand hard for Obama, who don't have their sexism in check, might come out of their necks with some foolishness too. Mm-hmm. And it's the same stuff we have to bring to the table with her as well. If we're talking about someone who's coming out of that right. Democratic Party machine, that right. mainstream politi- political machine, That's there's right. a lot wrong with that machine. There's That's a right. whole lot. At the same time, we would be absolutely lying to ourselves if we didn't say that having a woman in the White House didn't mean something. Right. It means a whole lot of different things. It doesn't uh-huh. mean that sexism's over, we've achieved justice and equality, right. or anything like that. It just has some symbolic meaning. That's right. That means particular sorts of things. I mean, look at Margaret Thatcher. She was like a horrible prime minister right. in many ways, but like she symbolized a particular kind of thing. Right. 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 And so the individual means as much as they mean a symbol. And then they also are part of this machine that bears Mm -hmm. to be held accountable. Mm -hmm. Um, And I am, I'm really curious about how it's going to go with, it seems as though that's going to happen. And at least her bid for the office will happen. And I think uh, it will be a really interesting, important how we respond to it, the way, I mean, it will be you know, telling. It will be so telling and it will be very interesting to see. I mean, Hillary Clinton's policies have been both, um, you know, at times progressive and at times very, uh, a lot of her, uh, you know, sort of war hawkish nature has been really intense. And so I'm very curious about how the feminist community will respond to all of that. I mean, there's a lot, there's There's a lot lot in here. There's a lot to think about. And I I just wonder if there will be more nuance attached to her possible presidency. We'll see. I'd be interested to see. I'm not sure. Well, you would think that we would be getting better at this. I don't know that we are, that we're getting better at nuance around uh, identity-based politicking, um, which it seems as though... We are not because the conversations are always so regressive. Right. Um, but binaries are still 20th century people. I mean, I mean for real. We although we were them. at a 90s party last night and it was awesome. We sure were. Although we were saying that the 90s maybe are better in our memory than they <laughs> actually were. The 90s parties in 2013 are maybe better than the 1990s parties in the 90s were. Seriously. I mean, at <laughs> least I'm, I'm not like li- living an actual episode of my so-called life as I was <laughs> when the show was on. I know. Oh, Jordan. Anyway. Anyway. So that's... Those are some things to think about. We're keeping our eyeballs peeled on um, uh, HRC and, um, you know, yeah. BO and how, right. how that will unfold. But All the goings on. Speaking of partying and having a good time, um, you know, we just wanted to talk a little bit about the ways in which, you know, this weird, cruel summer that's happening um, also needs to be sort of, I think, understood as an opportunity for us to hold each other closer. So earlier this week, I wrote a piece for the crunk feminist collective.com, uh, talking about radical empathy for communities of color. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's really important not to, by radical empathy, I mean, really understanding ourselves and each other and, um, paying close attention to what people's needs are and recognizing other people's humanity and so on because we're living in a world that is so clearly focused on dehumanizing us 
and exacting violence on us with impunity and not even seeing us, right? So how do we see ourselves? How do we love ourselves and one another? Uh, so for me, that has been listening to a lot of great music. Mm-hmm. And how long ago was it that we went to that Alice Smith concert? A week. Less than a week. Less than a It seems like a lifetime ago. A week and a half. It's been a week, week and a half. Yeah. So... Isha and I went to go see Alice Smith, which we talked a little bit about in the last podcast episode that we were going to see her. Yes. So we took our behind down to vinyl in Atlanta. And we saw her. And we saw her. And when I tell you it was a revelation. It was a revelation. Oh my gosh. Her voice is like a bell. It was just so beautiful. So beautiful. And it was so much... um, uh, this is the moment where I think we have to really look to our artists and our visionaries for some context and for something to hold on to because, mm-hmm. goodness gracious, our political environment gives us very little of that. So we have to look outside of that space to find some um, some sustenance mm-hmm. um, because the, the work of... Uh, you know, doing anti-racist work and doing work on ending violence will take everything you have to give. And so you need some replenishing. Mm -hmm. And we both left that concert feeling rejuvenated. And her voice is beautiful. And um, it's a form of truth-telling in its own Absolutely. I mean, I think maybe because I come from an evangelical tradition, I mean, the first thing that came to mind was like, this is like church, right? So I'm not a churchgoer anymore, but it just felt like a a spiritual or religious experience. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I felt sustained in a particular sort of way. So I think, you know, going back to your point about we need these moments to sustain ourselves, to replenish ourselves in order for us to do the work. We also need to do this stuff just to be. Mm-hmm. You know, so if that means you need to leave and go sit quietly somewhere and read a book or you need to go dance or you need to go make love with your boo thing or you need to go walk in the park with your moochie. Moochie is another word for dog or cat or ferret or pet, pet, you know, whatever pet you have. I mean, I guess you can't take your fish to the park. You could. You could. You could take the bowl. You could take the bowl. It might be a little messy. So, you know, just use your be own careful. discretion. Be careful. You know what I'm saying? Use your discretion, people. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there are lots of different ways to feed your spirit and your soul. Mm-hmm. And without necessarily calling on people to just sing kumbaya and hold hands, right. which might be fine, too. Right. And the, and the point that Audre Lorde makes so beautifully that actually mm-hmm. doing this is an act uh, is an act of resistance and Absolutely. an act of the revolution, so that we are sustained and able to take care of each other. It is, um, it's not something that I think we normally talk about as people who are in the world of politics. I have been in movements um, for ten years now, and the idea of taking care of ourselves and each other is always a nebulous afterthought to our work. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that we're realizing as we're feeling particularly the acuteness of this summer, Mm -hmm. but it's not new. It's Mm -hmm. just feeling acute right now because Mm -hmm. of these various stories in the Supreme Court and all those things, Mm -hmm. um, that it's actually a political act to care for each other well and to sustain our communities outside, both inside and outside of the structures that Mm -hmm. we live in. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So if we were never meant to survive, I mean, Of course, it's going to be really difficult. So, and as an academic, I think that there is a sort of similar, it's interesting, right? Because there's that academic industrial complex that's going on, right? 
Um, but there's this like sense of martyrdom that people have. Like, oh, I have to be working all the time. And, and I consider my like intellectual work and my teaching part of my political work as well. But like, sometimes you just need to sleep in. If you have the privilege, the right. class privilege to not have to get up that day right. and, and work 12 hours or what have you, or whatever the case is, mm-hmm. That's take right. the enjoyment where you can. That's right. And that that is actually really important. We never talk about it. We always talk about working ourselves. How are we going to save the world? Well, how are we going to save the world if we can't save ourselves? How about it? How about it? How about it? Speaking of saving the world. Oh, my gosh. So, (laughs) Isha is a great best friend because she went to see World War Z with me. I sure did. I appreciate you for it. Mm Mm-hmm. Don't get too smug. I know, because, yes. Okay, let's be forget. <laughs> There's lots of reasons why Susanna is also a great best friend. We're going to leave those out for okay. right now. All right. I'll we'll, just get to be the good best friend We'll enumerate time. that in another episode. Those are okay. right. uh, So the movie was kind of a hot-ass mess. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was what, how do you like to say, a hot, buttery mess? A hot, buttery mess. <laughs> buttery it mess. really just was. Why? Oh, gosh. First of all, I've been loving Brad Pitt a long time. You have. This is true. We have known each other for 15 years. Mm-hmm. And and you have been loving Brad Pitt that entire time. That entire time and before. And I before. mean, I went to high school in the 90s. So mm-hmm. Brad Pitt with long hair, Legends of the Fall. That's right. The w- blowing in the know, wind. Blowing in the wind. Yes. I'm here. I, okay. Let me bring it back. And we're digressing. And we're digressing. It's a good thing it's not a video because your eyes were rolling back into your head. Just slightly. <laughs> So, but basically this was a movie about Brad Pitt saving the world. Mm-hmm. And so I've read the book and the book I think is interesting and nuanced, not unproblematic, but just bringing forth some interesting ideas about how governments and people react to war and trauma with like a sort of zombie trope, right? That's cool. He could have really, Max Brooks, the author, could have really used anything, I think. He could have used a pandemic or, mm-hmm. you know, some sort of worldwide war that was just based mm-hmm. on, you know. Some climate disaster. Climate disaster, any number of things. So zombies, you know, I think were, were definitely interesting. And we know that there's been a, a literary and um, film precedent for that. And that's cool. But this was just Brad Pitt running around you know, shooting things and chopping people in the face and just... And actually saving the world. Actually, the only person in the entire world who could come up with the solution for saving us from manic zombies. So that's particularly acute. And from what I understand of the book, that the book is actually not like that. No. And so the movie is very sort of... I mean, it sounds like a loose... I think they just made a zombie movie and they called it World War Z because people had read the book. And, you know, spoiler alert, they ended it in a way that's clear that they're going to make a sequel. And I think it's unclear what's going to happen. It's probably going to be bad, too. But it seems like the sequel will actually be more like the actual book. Yeah, what's really tragic about it is that the questions that come up in a zombie apocalypse are relevant questions for how we live our lives, right? So how do we take care of the most vulnerable? How do we protect ourselves from rogue governments? Bands of marauders. That's right. So they're, they're really interesting social... I mean, there are some images of zombies... Largely brown-bodied zombies. How about it? Um, climbing over walls in this movie. And into like, Israel! Jumping into walls and then being sort of 
devastating a very pristine and safe and beautiful community within the walls, but then also just being sort of like gunned down with impunity. Um, And so, I mean, there's like, we're having a, a really intense, largely volatile and disgusting conversation about immigration in this country. And then here's this movie that's talking about protecting the world from marauding masses of brown folks jumping over the walls. I mean, like, there's an opportunity in this moment to use these conversations sort of get us to a place where we're thinking about scarcity of resources and trying to change those narratives. This movie did none of that. It played no. into all of the racist no, tropes sure around Ooh, who what about the sister in the cage? The oh scientist my in the God. cage. I don't you guys like <laughs> It was too much. I looked over at Susanna and I was like they had this black woman zombie in the cage and she was their test specimen. And all the other zombies in the movie looked generally like the undead. They right. didn't look particularly bright. She looked or, like a, mon- a monster. She looked mean and she looked terrifying. Mm-hmm. And it was very race and the way that her face... I mean, it was just like so gross. And it I was know like, that sister had to go to Juilliard or something. Right. You know, she was like, because I have these student loans and I just need a job. That's right. And, and so, so here she is in this movie. And so really the movie played at the lowest common denominators of our racial anxieties Um, And sort of really amplified those in ways that were so irresponsible. And then ultimately the world is, spoiler alert, saved by a white man um, in an effort not really. He saved the world by accident. What he really wanted to do was just get back to his family. That's right. He's like, because my family. It's like, fool, if the whole world has collapsed, what about your damn family? That's right. But okay, that's fine. We don't have to be logical. That's okay. No. And so, you know, so it's like, here's this, that we have to save the nuclear family Mm. and the one adopted Latino that they got in the movie. His parents got got. Because of and course. so the white family adopts him benevolent, yes. benevolently. Of course, of course. But he's of course not threatening in any way. He's That's just a right. kid and whatever. So anyway, so the movie is a hot ass mess. There's some great shots of zombies being zombies, but aside from that, the quality of the production. Bootleg. <laughs> Bootleg. But we had so, some good popcorn. We sure did. And we had a moment. I mean, I was a little scared because I don't watch the zombie movies like that. That's but, right. That's right. But I made it through. You did great. Good yes. job. Good job. Yes. So we will close there. We'll be back in two more weeks with another episode we of sure the will. podcast. We'll see what happens be between sure, now and then. That's right. And probably a whole lot of tomfoolery and shantastery. But be sure to find us on the web at let's uh, let's break it down show.com, on Facebook.com slash let's break it down show, on Twitter. You can follow us at Isha P and at I Am Punkadelic on SoundCloud. I mean, we're all over the internet. We're just everywhere, really. Get with it. And you can also email (laughs) us at letsbreakitdownshow at gmail.com. Thank you all for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.